Um, we are starting a series this morning called At Our Core. Um, we're going to be taking the next whatever to talk through things that we value, core values. Um, if you go on our website, you can go to the core value page. It seems like there's a hundred core values. And it always makes me think, can you have that many? Like when you talk about having core values, should you have like just a few? Um, so I want you to remember the core four. Okay, the words were behind you. We value the undeniable. We value the unbreakable. We value the uncontainable. We value the unexplainable. All of the values that we have fit into those four. Um, it is the undeniable message of Jesus. It is the unbreakable body of Jesus. It is the uncontainable kingdom of Jesus. It is the unexplainable worship of Jesus. How many of you here were here last week? Raise your hand. So last week at the end of worship, I come up and I share Psalm 132.4. It says, you know, lift up your hands in the sanctuary and exalt the Lord and bless the Lord. And, you know, sometimes for us, some of us, that's hard. Um, we're not here to make you do stuff. We're not here to tell you you have to. What we're here to do is say this. You know what? There are times when the, the love of Christ so overwhelms us that our worship of him is unexplainable. Somebody will walk in this place and go, like, I know you. What are your hands doing up in the air? Somebody got a gun to your back? And you would say, I don't really know. I mean, I know there's not a gun in my back, but I, I'm just, I got so overwhelmed with the love of Christ. I just kind of worshipped in a way that was unexplainable. There's a story in the Bible about a woman who took a year's worth of salary worth of perfume and she just broke it on Jesus' feet. And everybody that knew how much that was worth was like, Jesus, like, she's stupid. We could sell that and use the money for other stuff. She just shot the laptop. <laughs> and Jesus said, no, 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 that's not shooting the laptop, but about the woman. That's unexplainable worship. And we're not talking about unexplainable this morning. I'm just kind of letting you know this is where we're going to go, okay? So I want this to be a chance for you to kind of know what our heart is, what we value um, so you kind of go, okay, that's cool, I get that one. Or maybe you go, I don't, I don't know about that one. That's cool, we're good with it. This morning we're talking about the first one. We're going to start off with the undeniable message of Jesus. And you can't talk about the undeniable message of Jesus without talking about our very first core value. If you have a sheet, I'm going to tell you what it is. You can fill in the blanks at the top. This is our very first core value as a church. We value biblical truth. And expect its power to challenge and change us. So this morning's all about the Bible. <clears throat> Talking all about the Bible. We value biblical truth. We expect its power to challenge and change us. So we're going to answer three questions about the Bible. Question number one is this. Why is the Bible different? Why is the Bible different? If you have your pencils... And your pens, just get ready. Here comes a bunch of stuff to write down, okay? You're not going to get it all, just get the highlights. Here we go. One, it's unique. It's unique in its circulation. It's been read by and published in more languages than any book in history. Believe it or not, f um, about 40 years ago, the British and Foreign Bible Society had to pub publish one copy every three seconds just to meet the demand for the Bible. No other book can claim that. One every three seconds. It's unique in its circulation. It's unique in its survival. Two 
historical notes. Voltaire, um, uh, who is a French writer, predicted that Christianity would disappear within 100 years. When 100 years had passed, he was dead, and the Geneva Bible Society was using his house and his printing press to publish Bibles. It's unique in its survival. In 303 A.D., the Roman emperor Diocletian issued an edict to stop Christians from worshiping and to destroy their scriptures. Only 25 years later, the Roman emperor Constantine called for 50 copies of the Bible to be prepared at the expense of the government. People challenge the word of God, and they disappear. It's like being rubbed out by the mob, isn't it? <laughs> oh, the Bible, stupid book. <laughs> Where was that guy that said it was stupid? Gone. And the Bible just continues on. It's unique in its circulation. It's unique in its survival. It is unique in its continuity. I love this. Listen to this. The Bible's written over 1,500 years, over 40 generations, by over 40 authors in different places, times, and moods, on three continents, in three languages, about hundreds of topics, and yet they all agree on one central theme, God's redemption of man. Now, I want you to understand what a miracle this is. I thought about doing this, but we won't. I could give you one topic to discuss at one time right now, and I can guarantee you we wouldn't agree. Here's the topic. A parent shot a girl's laptop. Agree or disagree about that's good parenting. We could argue all day long about whether or not that's a good way to parent or a bad way to parent. I can guarantee you that if I gave 10 of you a sheet of paper and said, just write about that, and I collected them and we started reading them, you would not agree. 15 million people do not agree whether that was good or bad. One topic. But the Bible is not written at one time. It's written over 1,500 years by over 40 people that never knew each other. And they all agree on the one theme of the Bible. It's unique in its continuity. It's reliable. Why is the Bible different? One, because it's unique. Two, because it's reliable. Here's the way that they would copy manuscripts, letter by letter. I don't know how many. Do you like to copy stuff? I hate to copy stuff. So when I'm copying, I do this. I read like the whole sentence and come back over and write as much of that sentence as I can remember. And then oh, somewhere for me around the fourth word, I've forgotten it, so I have to go back. They copied letter by letter. A, A, D, D until the word's done. All the way through until they'd gotten all copied. Letter by letter. They knew the total number of words, the total number of letters that they should have. They knew which letter was the absolute middle letter. They knew which word was the absolute middle word. If they got to what they thought was the middle and that wasn't the same, they ripped it up and started over. When they got to the very end of copying it, they would count all the letters, count all the words, and then they would check, I'm supposed to have this many. If they didn't, they destroyed it. I don't know how you are, but if I knew that I had to destroy all my work if I got it wrong, I would make absolutely sure that what I copied was what I was supposed to copy. They used a different pen for writing the name of God. Not only that, when they had to write the name of God, they would stop, they would wash their hands, they would pick up a new pen, they would write his name, they would put that pen down, they would wash their hands again, they would pick up the original pen and keep on copying. What I want you to understand is it's not like how we copy stuff. These guys made absolutely sure because they knew that they were handling something that was not just words, something that was not just a book, not just a scroll. They were handling the Word of God. They made absolutely sure that they transmitted it 
accurately. After verifying the accuracy of the copy, they would actually destroy the original so that they could ensure that as it aged, people wouldn't misunderstand what was on it and think, well, I think it means this word. They would not make that mistake. They would destroy it. So it's reliable because of the way they copied it. It's reliable in the number of manuscripts. This blows me away. In the, of the New Testament, we have over 24,000 portions of the New Testament. That's a lot, isn't it? 24,000. The second most is the Iliad by Homer with 643. That's not even close. 24,000 copies of portions of the New Testament. The second most has 643. Not even close. The time span between Homer's work and the earliest copy is 500 years, which means Homer wrote the Iliad, 500 years went past, and then somebody copied it. With the New Testament, it's 125 years. The shorter the time, the more reliable the copy. The Bible has more manuscript evidence than any 10 pieces of classic literature combined. Now, I know as we get older, the things that we have to read in school change, but we have classic works in American literature. Do you agree? Take 10 of those. Combine how many manuscripts we have of those, and the Bible has more than those combined. Bottom line is this. If we question the reliability of the Bible, we might as well question the reliability of every classic literature you've ever read. You want to start a fight? Students, go to your English teacher tomorrow and tell her Shakespeare didn't really write that. And let me come video it. That'd be, that'd be awesome. She'll shoot you nine times, not your laptop. It's God's Word. It's been protected by God from men. No book has been more maligned than the Bible, but yet it exists. Why? Because a supernatural God is watching over his supernatural word. I, I don't know if you're the I'm talking to the men now. I don't know if you're a man of your word. I hope you are. I hope your integrity matters to you. I hope that when you say something, you actually mean to keep it. But I can guarantee you this. When God spoke, he meant to keep his word. He meant to preserve his word. That's why Voltaire died and they used his house to print more Bibles. Because God is watching over his word. He protects it. It's protected by God from men. It's written by God through men. Um, turn, if you've got your Bibles, to 2 Peter chapter 1. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. It says this, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. I was listening to a guy teaching this week, and he was talking about the Da Vinci Code. How many of you saw the movie? Like, are we ashamed of that? And he said this, the error that was... that that was populated by the Da Vinci Code is this. Basically, in order for a book to be supernatural, it just has to kind of drop out of heaven. That it can't be touched by men at all because that means it's a, a book of man and not a book of God. This scripture says this, that the Bible is a book from heaven 
and it is a work of man. If you got your pens, just jot this down. Summarize this this way. The Bible is God's word to men through men. Which is why when you read the Bible, you read what Paul wrote and it goes, that kind of sounds like something Paul would write. You read Leviticus, you're like, I don't know what that sounds like. Somebody had a bad day when they wrote that. You read the Gospels, and I, I kind of get that. Yeah, I see that. Uh, Matthew, would in, he would include money stuff. He was a tax collector. Mark, Mark did a lot of stuff about how Jesus would, he would deliver people immediately because he was writing to, um, to a, a segment of people who were completely um, taken with authority. They loved to know that if their king said go, that people went right like that. That's who Mark wrote to, so he included a lot of stuff. You'll read the word immediately in the Gospel of Mark more than any other book. But these guys were not like suddenly in a trance, just writing down the letters from God. That's not how they were. God moved through them. He used their personalities. He spoke his word to men through men. Prophecy never had its origin in the will of men, but God spoke, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It's, it's God's word. It was protected by God from men. It was written by God through men. It was prophesied by God to men. Do you, do you know this? The prophecies in the Bible are what set it apart from every other holy book. I didn't realize this. There are no prophecies in the Quran about a man to come named Muhammad. There are no prophecies. But the Bible has 60 prophecies about a man that would come named Jesus. Guess what? He came. It's a little bit of an outdated illustration, but it's the one that I, I learned and so I remember it really well. Do you know what the odds are that one individual, let's just pick Randy because I like Randy. The odds that Randy, as one man, would fulfill eight of the prophecies about Jesus. Here's the mathematical equation. Take quarters, a bunch of quarters. Throw them into the state of Texas. Fill the entire state of Texas with quarters one foot deep. You got me so far? You with me? Pick one of those quarters up. Take a red pen and put an X on it. Throw it back in there. Get a big stick and stir the whole state of Texas up. Mix them up really good. Blindfold one man and tell him he can walk anywhere he wants in the state of Texas. He can bend down and pick up one quarter and only one quarter. And the likelihood that he would pick up that one quarter with the red X is the same probability that one man would fulfill eight prophecies. Jesus fulfilled all 60. Man, if that doesn't give us confidence that this book is from God, it's reliable. It's God's word. So the second question, why is the Bible necessary? It's one thing to say that it's different, but is it necessary? One, because it tells us about Jesus. He is the subject of the Bible. A lot of people get confused about this. They're pretty sure that this book is a guidebook for them, that this is... If I just learned the Bible, this is a really good manual on how I can live my life. It's not about you. The Bible is important. It's necessary because it tells us about Jesus. 
In Luke 18.31, Jesus even mentions that the prophets wrote about him. He says from his own mouth, the words that the prophets wrote about me will be fulfilled. He is the subject of the Bible. Every author wrote about Jesus and wrote about Jesus' life. They either wrote looking forward to him or they wrote looking back at him. Everyone wrote about Jesus. The Bible is necessary because it tells us about Jesus. It's necessary because it tells us about salvation. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Second Timothy chapter 3, verses, starting in verse 15. Paul's talking to Timothy. He says, You know how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. What does the Bible do? It, it makes us wise for salvation. It points us to salvation. It's not actually something we're supposed to read and get some really good principle out of so we can write the next great best-selling book. It's a book, it's, it's a collection of books that point us to salvation. The Bible makes us wise for salvation. Salvation is not found in the Bible, but in the person to whom the Bible points. Just jot down John 5:39. You go read that and you'll find even way back in the day when Jesus was living and he was talking to religious leaders, he said this to them. Basically, you have taken the, you've taken the scriptures and you have kind of made them your idol. And you search the scriptures and search the scriptures and search the scriptures and you know the scriptures, but you don't know me. Sometimes we make... Even like right now, we're doing G90X. So we're reading the Bible, right? As much as we can. As fast as we can. We just want to learn it. We want to understand it. But this, this is not the deal. This points to the deal. It's possible. Well, it's not possible. It's probably likely that most of you know more about the Bible than I do. You can be, I know people that are so smart in the Bible and they don't know Jesus. The point is to know the Bible, to know that it's necessary, not so you can blow people away with your biblical knowledge, but so that you can see Jesus because the Bible points to Jesus. The Bible points to salvation, and it tells us about ourselves. 2 Timothy 3.16 All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. That's not a good verse. I don't know how you guys do with training. I'm not into training. I mean, this month, I picked February to go off of soft drinks because it's the shortest month of the year. To be perfect. And then I realized it was leap year and I was like, dang, it's another day. I mean, I am about as addicted to Diet Mountain Dew as they come. And so I just thought, I need to just see if I can do this. February's the month. There's only 28 days. Oh, mm, 29. Man, I don't like it. I think I told Wendy I was missing Diet Mountain Dew around February the 1st. Like I'm eight, eight hours into it, and you're like, you know, I just don't like it. I want, I want my mountain. And Will went out this week, bless his heart, and he bought this, like, 
$1 Monster Mountain Dew can. And I opened the fridge and I just went, oh, who's is that? She said, it's Wills. I said, man, that looks so good right now. Training stinks. Because you're, you're, you're putting some things aside so that you can get better at other things. The, the Bible's good for that. The Bible, it says, it is good for rebuking. No word that rhymes with puke is good. <laughs> the Bible's good for rebuking. I mean, rebuking is a really nice word that basically means God says, dude, I'm going to kick your butt. And it, the Bible's good for that. Are you thinking it's good for nothing right now? It's good for correcting. How many of you like to be corrected? How many of you, um, teenagers, your parents tell you that you're doing something wrong and you don't have a good poker face? So as soon as they correct you, it just it goes all over your face. Your face just goes to stone. And my mom used to say all the time, Paul, I'm telling you, if looks could kill, you would be in prison right now. I just don't have a good poker face. If you come and tell me that what I'm doing could be done better and I don't like what you just said, I can't hide it from you. I mean, you will pretty, you'll be pretty sure I'm going to kill you. I just don't have a good poker face. The Bible's good for that. Now, we're getting to the, where we apply this stuff, but I want you to understand that the Bible tells us about ourselves. And apparently, there's so much good in us that three of the four aren't good. If even teaching is good, but I think sometimes teaching can be fun. It tells us about ourselves. 2 Timothy 3.17, it says it equips us for every good work. He does all that through Scripture so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Have you ever had the dream when you're sitting at school and they're giving you a test and you've forgotten all about that test? Typically, the dream is you're in your underwear. And if you ask a psychologist, why do I dream about being in my underwear? They'll always say this because you're afraid of being unprepared. Okay, all right, why is that a recurring dream for us? Because none of us want to be unprepared. All of us want to feel like we're equipped. It's like, I mean, this morning, like Bridget getting up and doing the announcement, she's like, I don't know, man, I just found out. I mean, that's tough. You want to be prepared. I had an interview this week, and I, was, I told Wendy, I mean, I was just freaking out about this interview because I just wish they'd have given me like 10 questions three weeks in advance so I would have known what they were going to ask me. But they just looked at me and said, so, ask the question, and then I was just supposed to start talking. I mean, as it turns out, they'll probably use like five seconds of my answer because it wasn't that good. Nobody likes to be unprepared. The good news is that even though the Bible's good for stuff like rebuking and training and correction, it's all done so that we can be totally, not partly, thoroughly equipped and prepared for every good work. Imagine that. Who in here would not sign up for a job where you were guaranteed, no matter what you were told to do, you were always thoroughly equipped to do it? I would. That's what the Bible does. So, why is the Bible necessary? Because it tells us about Jesus, about salvation, and about ourselves. Here's the third question, and then we'll wrap it up with this. If we know that the Bible's different, we know that the Bible is necessary. 
Let me just ask you the hard question. Why is the Bible ignored? I mean, if we were honest, show of hands, which we won't be because it's crazy being honest in church. Most of us might have cracked the Bible a couple times this week. But we breathed a lot. We ate a lot. But the Bible feels optional sometimes. Like, I know I'm supposed to read it, but if I don't read it, I know God loves me and he won't kill me. That's kind of how our rationale goes. So the question is, if we know it's different, if we know that it's necessary, literally, Christians can't live without it, then why is it ignored? Here's a couple reasons. Number one, it confuses us. Is that fair to say? A lot of people, we read the Bible and we just kind of go, huh? It's hard. I want to um, give you good news, okay? Second Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. I tell you all the time that sometimes there's um, ver verses in the Bible that I don't like. This is one that I, these are one that I really do like. Second Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. Peter says this, Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. Verse 16 says this, He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. I love the fact that when I'm reading the Bible and I just don't quite get it, I find myself saying to God, well, you know, Peter didn't understand Paul either. Peter's admitting it right here. Like, Paul wrote the Bible, but I don't know what he's saying. It, it should not surprise us when we don't understand the Bible. Because for starters, it's like a spiritual book. And we're not always spiritual people. Sometimes we don't. We ignore the Bible simply because it's hard to understand. Here's what I say. I mean, get a Bible you can understand. There's tons available. The Message, New Century Version, New Living Translation, the NIV. There's gazillions of them. Get one you can understand and start reading it. It challenges us. This is probably the single biggest reason why people choose not to read the Bible. Because it corrects, it rebukes, it trains. And none of those are fun. And to be perfectly honest with you, as a pastor, it's a really hard sell. You should read the Bible more. Of course, when you do, it's going to rebuke you and challenge you and convict you. And you're going to feel like crap. Go! It's a hard sell. Hebrews 4.12 takes it even further. Hebrews 4.12 says that the Bible is living and active. It is sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. That's like surgery. Have your quiet time, and God's going to cut you. Won't that be fun? No. We value biblical truth. 
This is a powerful book. It is living and it is active. But we fully expect as a church that it will challenge us and it will change us. We don't expect for you to come in here and always walk out going, that was fun. I mean, I'm, I'm, an, I'm ADD enough that I wish that it was always going to be like that. Like we could just bounce shiny balls and, you know, we'd all be like, this was fun, it was great. But if we open the Bible and teach from it, and it's true, everything else might be fun, but you're liable to walk out going, God, it was all great until Paul started talking. Because the Bible is hard. It challenges us. It, it cuts us. It penetrates to the point that you can't hide. And that's hard. Don't you like to hide sometimes? I love to hide sometimes. I'm, I'm naturally a back row person. Like when I walk into a new setting, I just want to sit in the back. Don't anybody talk to me. Just leave me alone. But if the Bible's true, and we know that it is, you could sit in the back of the next building, and the Word of God says it's a double-edged sword, and it will penetrate you. It will cut you. And verse 13 goes so far as to say that it will lay you bare before the eyes of God. That just does not sound fun to me. That sounds like I want to have the Bible in my house and have my personal quiet time where I can just, nobody will see me when I'm like cut and bleeding and oozing. The Bible's it's a probe. It's sharp. It judges us. I, can't, I can guarantee you no one in here likes to be judged. But the Bible is a book that judges us. It leaves us uncovered. It leaves us bare. The question is why? And it is because he is preparing us so that we can stand blameless before him in Christ. So let's um, apply this thing. What do you take away from it? Number one, stop being surprised that the Bible makes you uncomfortable. Because some of you have put the Bible away. You read it a couple times and you didn't understand it. And the parts that you did understand made you feel terrible. And so you just closed up and said, I'm not doing that. I don't want to feel bad. Stop being surprised. Expect the Bible to challenge you. Pull it back out. Give the Word of God another shot. Second, expect the truth of the Bible to change you. Psalm 119, 9 through 11. It says, how can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. I'll seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Those three verses, they definitely reveal some behavior shifts, don't they? I mean, you can tell the guy, he, he's like, look, if I read the Bible, I can keep my way pure. If I hide the word in my heart, I won't sin against you. We expect the Bible to change us. There, make, make a commitment to learn and live the Bible. We used to do this at home all the time. I'd ask my, my sons, um, hey, what's the purpose of the Bible? Learn it and live it. Learn it and live it. Learn it and live it. That's the whole point. It's not to say you read it in a year, in three months, in a month, in a day. That'd be amazing. It's just to learn it and to live it. 
So you read until something stands out to you, and you learn that, and then you go apply it. Just learn it and live it. If we don't do that, we become like James chapter 1, 22 to 25. James chapter 1, 22. Don't just merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but who does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. And I know right now you're thinking that man's an idiot. Am I right? Who looks in the mirror, sees himself, and walks away and forgets what he looks like? But you've done it. You've done it because you were going into an important meeting, a date, and you looked in the mirror, and you walked away, and 30 seconds later you thought, did I see a booger hanging out of my nose? And you went back to the mirror and looked again, and you okay, I'm good. And then you walked out, and you kind of, your nose felt funny again. You're like, did I? I'm pretty sure. And you went back and looked again. We've all done this. We all do this all the time. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. Make a commitment to learn and live the Bible. Read it regularly, even when it's difficult. And here's what's going to happen. Over time, you'll start getting stronger. You'll start feeling better. You'll feel healthier as a believer. You'll feel like you've got more confidence about what God's doing in your life. We talked about this at community group this past Wednesday night. And you need to plug into a community group if you're not in one already. Um, you've got no shot at growing with Jesus and others if you don't plug in a community group. Because Christianity is not about being at home talking to Jesus while you play Call of Duty. I mean, you can do that, but that's not going to sustain you and you're not going to grow. It's all about being in community, sharing the Word of God. And we talked about this, about how hard it is to understand the Bible and how, you know, we really do, and I'm the same way. I want, every time I open the Bible, I just want to open it and I want, like, this white light to shine up and I want the Hallelujah Chorus to start to play and I want to read the most amazing verse ever so I can write the next book and be the next bestseller, and maybe be like Joel Olstein, but not smile so fake. And, but that's not, that's not reality, right? I mean, you've read the Bible. Am I, is that fair to say? The Bible sometimes is just reading it, and you're like, I don't know what that meant. And we talked about this. What did you have for supper two Tuesday nights ago? More than likely, you have no clue. I'm guessing there are certain meals that you can remember that you had. Like, I definitely remember the meals that Wendy and I had in Charleston because we ate at 82 North, and it was fantastic. We had lunch at Magnolia's, and it was amazing. We, I remember those meals, but we've been married for 20 years. The number of meals like that that I can remember, and some of them she cooked, are, are small. I mean, they're just, you don't have a lot of those memorable moments like that. But I've eaten every day of my life. I am who I am because I ate meals that I have long since forgotten. And reading the Bible is a lot like that. When you only read it once a week, and it's when I'm telling you the verses to look up in here, that's literally like eating once a week. You're going to die. Eat it all the time. Just open up the Bible and just say, I'm going to read. If I don't understand it, I'm going to 
go ask Paul what it means. And since he probably won't understand either, he'll get somebody smarter than him to tell me what it means. But I'm just going to read it. And, and, and when I get a verse that just jumps off the page, then I'm just going to be like, man, I'm writing that one down. That's the lunch at Magnolia's. I remember that one. And those are great. But I'm telling you, they're, they're few and far between sometimes. But it doesn't mean we don't read the Bible. We value biblical truth. We expect its power to challenge and change us. I want you as an individual to value biblical truth. I can't make that value your value. I just want it to be your value. But I can tell you corporately as a church, we will never be a church that does not teach this. Because we expect it to challenge us. I will be a pastor who is completely okay with you walking up to me going, I hated what you said today. Hated, like all capital letters underlined. And I'll just say, man, I kind of hated preaching it, but it's in here. And it's hard. I totally understand. But I can guarantee you this, we will always teach what's in here. Always. Because this book points us to Jesus points us to salvation. It prepares us for salvation. It makes us wise to salvation. It keeps us from sin. It is unique. It is different. It is necessary. It cannot be ignored.